The murder of Jacqueline de Wallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who've lived through it. We like to imagine that a child's bedroom is a safe haven from predators. We also like to imagine that we all know our neighbours, especially in small towns where everyone knows one another. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street, and even more chilling, they could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. In the early 1900s, Midlothian, Illinois was a break away from the busy city of Chicago for wealthy industrialists. The quiet, rural area was a breath of fresh air in comparison to the bustling streets of Chicago. A railway track was built for easy commuting from the heaving city to the sleepy countryside, with a station at Midlothian Country Club. A community was born at the train station, with a school, residential areas and eventually some businesses. In 1949, the village hall was built at Pulaski, and 148th Street. From then on, the village went from strength to strength, growing to a population of well over 10,000 by the 1970s. What was once just a milk stop along the Rock Island Railroad was now a peaceful suburban town, just half an hour from Chicago, modern haven where life was lived at a slower pace. It was a typical small town where everyone knew everyone. The people who lived in Midlothian ranged from white-collar office workers to blue-collar labourers. Midlothian was a safe town where people went to raise a family. Children born in Midlothian would in turn raise their own kids there. There are few places in modern society that can conserve a hometown spirit. Midlothian endeavours to do just that. Like most small towns, there wasn't very much to do, but the local roller skating rink was one of the main hangouts for teenagers in the 70s. One of those teenagers was Cynthia Borelli. It was here that she met Jimmy Guess, a stereotypical bad boy that contrasted her quieter demeanour. When Cynthia fell pregnant seven years into the relationship, Jimmy couldn't keep his promise to change and be the man she wanted to raise a family with. The fairy tale sweetheart romance was short lived, and the couple had a bitter divorce around the time they welcomed their baby girl, Jacqueline, who was born May the 17th, 1981. Jimmy wasn't part of Jacqueline's life, but the little girl soon had her perfect nuclear family when her mother met and married David DeWallaby a local construction worker. Cynthia and David were married when Jacqueline was two years old, 
and David formally adopted Jacqueline six months later. The Dwallabies had a second child, a little boy they named David after his father. In 1987, the young family moved into David Dwallaby's childhood home at 3636 148th Place. The one-story, raised ranch-style home was one of a dozen small houses that lined either side of the small street, close to the Sundrop Prairie Nature Preserve. It was a quiet neighbourhood, even during the busy summer months when all of the children would play together on the street. Cars would pass without a single car passing through the neighbourhood. It was a safe block. There were rarely cars driving along the road, unless it was one of the locals coming home. Here, people took care of their properties and of each other. Moreover, in 1988, Midlothian won a Governor's Hometown Award, The school holidays had come to an end, but the day still stretched, not quite wanting to let go of summer. The nights were short and peaceful. The neighbourhood kids all played together. They ran lemonade stands, rode their bikes and had water fights. Seven-year-old Jacqueline was a happy little girl who never showed any signs of sadness or anger, according to a neighbour whose own daughter was good friends with Jacqueline but often have her over to play dolls with. Jacqueline was beautiful like her mother, with dark hair and deep blue eyes. Little Davy was known to be wild and mischievous, like most four-year-old boys, and people often looked sideways at the Dwallaby's laxed parenting style, regarding them as undisciplined because they chose to reward their children's good behaviour instead of punish their misdeeds. Neighbours would say that Cynthia and David kept to themselves, but they were friendly, and it was evident that they were very much a loving family. One neighbour said, They never even spanked them. They'd send them to their rooms or take away their bikes. They didn't believe in corporal punishment. They were totally against it. 26-year-old Cynthia worked part-time with a dietitian at Oak Forest Hospital and took classes at the local community college. 31-year-old David was a hard-working foreman at Rack's Erecting Service, the only day he had ever taken off work in nine years at the construction company was the day he adopted Jacqueline. David's mother Anne took care of the children while their parents worked. She owned the yellow and orange bricked house and slept in the basement. In September of 1988, Jacqueline had started second grade in the nearby Central Park School. The family lived in the perfect location, surrounded by several nature preserves and parks, all within a short walking distance. Weekends were spent together, going out to eat, riding bikes, fishing or going for ice cream. Friday, September 9th was an average day for the Dwallaby family. David went to work from 8am to 4pm and returned home at 5.30pm before heading to Anchor Bowl in Blue Island to go bowling with some friends. Cynthia started her morning by dropping Jacqueline to school and doing laundry while chatting with her mother Mary on the phone. She then received an unexpected call from her supervisor to ask if she could work the early shift from noon until 4. 
Before going to the hospital where she was employed, she went to some thrift shops with her mother-in-law, Anne. Cynthia went to work and left the laundry drying on the line. After work, Cynthia stopped at a thrift shop and bought Jacqueline a new dress. At home, Jacqueline and Davy were playing in Anne's truck with their friends, and Cynthia tried on some clothes before taking the children to a nearby KFC to pick up dinner. Afterwards, Cynthia and the children drove home where David's mother Anne and his sister Michelle Goldrick were. When they arrived on 148 Place, there were cars everywhere. The neighbours were having a Tupperware party. Cynthia managed to squeeze her Chevy Malibu into a spot in front of her house, blocking her driveway by approximately a foot. They ate their dinner before the adults sat talking in the living room and the kids played at their feet. Jacqueline went to her room briefly before returning with her favourite Christmas dress for Michelle to give her daughter Marissa. It was a red and white dress that Jacqueline had worn the previous Christmas. Michelle thanked Jacqueline for the kind gesture but said that the dress would be too big for Marissa because she was only two and a half years old. David returned home at 9.20pm that evening and Michelle left shortly after. The family watched television together before Jacqueline put on her purple and white nightgown, said goodnight to her parents and walked in the hallway to her bedroom, clutching a Sears catalogue. The catalogue was a booklet with all of the store items listed. Jacqueline had told her parents not to come into her room because she was looking through what she called the wish book for Christmas presents. David's mother Anne said in an interview later, She wanted to pick a gift out for everyone and she was circling them when she went to sleep. Later that night, Anne headed out through the back door for a night out with colleagues from the El Dorado restaurant. Cynthia and David had spoken about Anne's drinking habits. It wasn't a rare occurrence for her to go out drinking, but David insisted she could take care of herself. David went to bed shortly after. He set his alarm for 7.30am because he had planned to practice his golfing skills before a tournament the next afternoon. For the past three years, David had been part of a golfing group which met each Friday night between September and May. Cynthia didn't fall asleep as easily as her husband, so she continued watching TV in the family room. At approximately 11.50pm, Cynthia decided to go to bed too. Like most parents, she had a ritual before turning in for the night. She turned off the lights in the living room, checked on the kids who were asleep in their beds. Jacqueline had left the overhead light on, presumably having fallen asleep while reading the wish book and dreaming of what gifts she wanted for Christmas. The little girl had fallen asleep on her mattress pad, her Lady Lovelock's duvet draped across her. The matching sheet was still hanging on the line. Jacqueline wouldn't sleep with any other sheet. Cynthia turned off the overhead light in Jacqueline's bedroom and left the doors to the children's bedrooms ajar and her own bedroom door half open. There was nothing untoward about the peaceful suburban neighbourhood on that Friday night. The neighbourhood dogs were growling, but nothing you wouldn't tune out. Cynthia went to sleep. Overnight, Midlothian would change forever, and it would be a long time before any parent slept peacefully again. What exactly transpired in that house that night remains unclear, but by the next morning, Jacqueline was gone.
David and Cynthia awoke at 7.38 a.m. to the sound of their alarm. The comfort of their beds enticed them back to sleep. David had intended on going for an early morning golf session, but decided against it in favour of a lion. The piece wasn't to last. Not long after, Davy came into his parents' room. Cynthia was still asleep, so David brought his son into the living room to watch Pee-wee's Playhouse on TV. It was here that David noticed that the front door was open. Thinking that maybe his mother had left it open after being out the night before, he just closed it and continued to the kitchen to make them some cereal. David said at the time, I went into the kitchen, I looked in the driveway for her car and her car wasn't there. And, you know, again, the first reaction was that she must have came home in the middle of the night, went back out and left it open. At around 9am, Cynthia woke up for a second time. As was their regular routine, David took a cup of coffee to Cynthia, who inquired as to whether Jacqueline was awake yet. David informed Cynthia that Jacqueline had not yet surfaced from her bedroom, but he wanted Cynthia to get out of bed so that he could get ready to go golfing. Cynthia took a sip of her coffee and called her brother's wife, Sylvia. She had just signed up to join a ceramics class, but was unsure if she would make it, because Aunt Wallaby had been out the night before, and she didn't know if she would be home to babysit. By this time, it was 9.30am. Cynthia told David that she was going to wake Jacqueline. She made her way down the hallway to Jacqueline's bedroom where she had expected to see her playing with her dolls on her bedroom floor. However, when she peeked through the half-open door into the bedroom, it was silent and empty. Jacqueline's canopy bed was bare. She called out to David to ask him if he had seen Jacqueline. He responded that he hadn't, and Cynthia called out, Jacqueline, are you home? When she was younger, Jacqueline had left the house without waking anybody, but the doors had latches on them now. She wouldn't have been able to reach them. Most parents can relate to the immediate sinking feeling you get when your child isn't exactly where you thought they were, even if they are just out of sight for a few seconds. You can feel that blood drain from your body as your mind tries not to comprehend the unthinkable. Cynthia called Jacqueline's friend's house, but she wasn't there. Cynthia and David searched around their home, calling out Jacqueline's name. They pulled out her bed, which was now bare, apart from a suitcase that Jacqueline often played with. As they made their way throughout the house, their fear escalated from room to room. Why would Jacqueline take her duvet with her? It's not unusual for a child to take their blanket with them in the morning when they wake up and go into their parents' bedroom, or to snuggle up in front of the TV. But this was something that Jacqueline never did. In an interview, Cynthia said, started to walk quicker and call louder. When I went back into Jacqueline's room, and I noticed that her comforter was missing, and that it was very unusual for her comforter to be missing because she doesn't play with it. David thought back to the open front door, He suggested that maybe Jacqueline had gone outside. They walked up and down the neighbourhood and informed any neighbours that they came across in the search that Jacqueline was missing. David later said, 
I had checked two or three homes, and then we went out in my truck and we drove around the neighborhood, going to friends who lived a little further down, and just you know driving around the blocks and uh, getting out of the truck, looking in backyards with our swing sets. Cynthia, David, and Davy climbed into their pickup truck and began to scout the neighborhood. No one had seen Jacqueline. Unfruitful in their search, they returned home. And Wallaby returned home at around the same time. She'd been out the night before and stayed with a friend. And told the Dwallabies that she hadn't left the door open and she hadn't seen Jacqueline. She had expected to come home to babysit her grandchildren while David went golfing and Cynthia went to a ceramics class. But now her eldest grandchild was missing. She was sure that she shut the door. She didn't even have a front door key. She used the back door. Anne spoke about this at the time. We went outside, just in the street, and yelled. Cindy was calling Jacqueline's name, you know. And I was looking down the street, trying to think, where should I go? Cynthia walked through the house again, in the hopes that Jacqueline may have come out of a hiding place, or come back home while they were out. As she skirted the outside of the house, she made a grim discovery. The screen door of the basement window appeared to have been cut or ripped back, and the window had been shattered and pushed open. Cynthia screamed, Oh my God, David, oh my God. In an interview, Cynthia said, I was cutting through my yard to look into my neighbor's backyard, and that's where I noticed the window. Cynthia thought back to a time when Jacqueline was a newborn, and her biological father had allegedly climbed a window to try and take her. She rang Jacqueline's paternal grandmother, Jackie Guess, to see if they had Jacqueline, but Jackie was at work. David rang the police and a state trooper was the first to arrive. David was composed enough to answer questions, but Cynthia couldn't keep still. She was vomiting from fear and anxiety. David brought the officer down to the basement and showed him the broken window. They went into Jacqueline's bedroom, which by now was a mess. The bed was still pulled out from where they had checked for Jacqueline, and her clothes were poking out from an open dresser. Once the Dwallaby said that they believed that Jacqueline was kidnapped, the FBI were sent to their house. It was supposed to be a normal Saturday morning, but the house was filling up with law enforcement officers. Suddenly, their home didn't feel comfortable at all. They were bombarded with questions. It was almost impossible to focus and answer when they were consumed with fear and worry. Where did Jacqueline go? The officers and neighbours tried in vain to comfort David and Cynthia, saying, Don't worry, we're going to find Jacqueline. Don't worry, we're sure she's all right. The FBI set up phone taps while waiting for a ransom call. If a stranger broke in and took the little girl, maybe they would call and ask for money. David rang Cynthia's best friend Peggy and told her that Jacqueline had been kidnapped. Peggy told him not to worry, that it had to be Jacqueline's biological father. Peggy raced to the house, expecting it to be cordoned off like a crime scene, but instead there were people walking around freely from room to room. 
At first, Cynthia suspected that maybe Jacqueline was with her biological father, and so while worried about her daughter's whereabouts, she didn't believe that her child's life was in danger. She just wanted her home. Jimmy's mother lived nearby. Jacqueline still saw her a couple of times a year, but not often, because Jimmy's younger brother, Tim, still lived at home and had psychiatric issues that made Cynthia feel nervous. Cynthia was inconsolable. Her home was full of officers, relatives and neighbours, but she couldn't comprehend what was happening. David tried to control what he could about the situation. Feeling helpless, he focused on trying to make the house more secure, pointing out and fixing anything he thought could be a way for someone to break in. He changed the locks, put deadbolts on the doors, replaced bulbs and floodlights. Cynthia couldn't leave the house. She sat by the phone waiting for Jacqueline to call. The phone rang a lot. Neighbours, friends, reporters, so many people called, but nothing they said could pacify her mind. She cut calls short. They didn't have call waiting and she wanted to make sure the phone line was clear in case Jacqueline or whoever had her called. But the call never came. Time was passing. The Dwallabies had questions themselves. Had Jacqueline eaten? Was she looking for them too? Was she scared? Why hadn't they heard the window breaking? How could they sleep through someone walking through their house? How could they ever sleep again without saying goodnight to their little girl? Flyers were printed with Jacqueline's photograph and the iSearch phone number, along with a detailed description of her appearance as well as a description of her missing blanket. They described Jacqueline as standing at around four feet tall and weighing around 60 pounds, with brown, shoulder-length hair and blue eyes. It described the blanket as purple and white in colour with a floral print, as well as a picture of a blonde-haired girl on a swing. David and his friends passed them out at toll boots, asking anyone who'd seen her to call and keep an eye out for the seven-year-old who never went anywhere alone. David's co-workers and neighbours from the Diwallaby Street formed search parties. Each group was accompanied by a police officer and they searched every inch of the area through the night. There was no sign of Jacqueline. Cynthia and David told investigators that neither of them had heard anything out of the ordinary during the night and they all slept soundly. We're looking for that one solid clue that will tell us something. Someone who saw or heard something, someone who knows something said Midlothian Captain John Bitten in regards to the disappearance. Investigators needed to establish whether somebody had broken into the home during the night and abducted Jacqueline, or if she'd walked away from the home on her own accord and then potentially had been abducted by somebody. There was even the possibility that Jacqueline had ran away from home. However, this was something that her family refused to even entertain the idea of. Jacqueline had no history of running away from home, And according to Cynthia and David, this was something that they knew Jacqueline would never do. Furthermore, nothing in the house was missing other than Jacqueline's blanket, which matched her purple and white pyjamas, and there appeared to be no sign of a struggle. As news of the potential kidnapping circulated throughout the neighbourhood, the possibility that someone had snuck into a family's home and kidnapped their young daughter in the dead of night as everybody slept was a terrifying notion. If you're not safe in your own home, then where are you, say? 
With no sign of a struggle, investigators began to question whether Jacqueline had willingly gone with somebody that she knew. If the kidnapper had entered through the broken basement window, then they would have had to have known the layout of the house to get into Jacqueline's bedroom without disturbing any of the other occupants. We're not ruling out that a relative or friend could be involved. According to Anne, the shattered window was fresh. Anne would know. She owned the home and lived in the basement. The basement apartment did not have its own door to and from the outside, meaning that there wasn't a way into the basement except for through the home's front door, the home's back door, or through the basement window. On the night of Jacqueline's disappearance, Anne had left the home at around 10.30pm to go to a restaurant located in Oak Forest. Anne left the home via the back door and made sure that she locked it behind her. Speaking with investigators, she said that she did not have a key for the front door at the time. We just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. At the moment, there's so many of us who are going through difficult times. BetterHelp is a professional counselling service that's available online. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. You can access private sessions with your therapist on a video or phone call. You can also message your therapist at any time that you need to. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and there is financial aid available. You won't have to sit in a waiting room and you aren't limited to the therapist in your area. This means that you can speak with someone who has a specialised experience with the issues you're dealing with. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, so if you require urgent medical help, please contact emergency services. We want you to start living a happier life today. You'll get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. Over 1 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp. You can read their testimonials that are posted on their website daily. Try our sponsor, BetterHelp, at betterhelp.com forward slash shattered. And Wallaby was born a coal miner's daughter, the third of seven children. She married young and had two children with her then-husband. That marriage ended and she left in fear after her ex threatened her. She left her eldest daughter in the care of her mother-in-law so that she could get a job. After the divorce was finalised, she was granted custody of her children, Christine and James. Christine continued living with her grandmother Penelope in Cicero while Anne got settled in her new apartment near Kenwood. In a horrible sequence of foreshadowing, Anne's daughter Christine disappeared. Penelope had taken her to Greece, and Anne never saw her again. Anne remarried a man named Ernest Wallaby shortly after she was expecting their first child. To their surprise, Anne had twins on February 14th 1957, Valentine's Day. They named their babies David and Rose. David was named after his uncle, who had died a year earlier after being struck by a car at just 11 years old. Anne had three more children with Ernest. When David was in the first grade, he went missing. A stranger offered to help him and he clambered into their car. Luckily, the stranger brought David to a police station David had been reported missing by his mother and he was brought home. 
This must have stuck in Anne's mind all those years later when she told her granddaughter Jacqueline about the dangers of strangers. When he was young, David was a protective older brother. He was calm and kind, and he had his mother's humour. When he was a teenager, he had two minor convictions for marijuana possession, something that seemed like a completely harmless adolescent mistake at the time would later be used to slander David's name. The Dwallabies had moved into the house on 148th place in 1969. While David was at school here, he met Jean O'Connor, his best friend and the man that would introduce him to his future wife. Ernest Wallaby died while David was in high school. He had suffered two heart attacks before his death, and during the second, he drove himself to the hospital. Just days later, he passed away. David didn't go on to college after finishing school. Instead, he got a job. He knew the value of money, having grown up with five siblings. In 1979, the family suffered another tragedy. David's older brother James died in a swimming accident at just 25 years old. David had a brief marriage, but his wife didn't like the idea of settling down and left him with very little. He moved in with Jean and not long after, Jean's girlfriend Peggy moved in as well. It was through Peggy and Jean that David would meet the love of his life. Cynthia was the youngest Borelli child, Polite and shy, she did well in school. Her parents' relationship was strained and her father left. The family moved and it was at the local roller skating rink that Cynthia met James Guess. The pair had a tumultuous seven-year relationship. They got married when Cynthia was pregnant with Jacqueline. Sadly, Jimmy couldn't be the man that Cynthia deserved and she left, ready to brave single motherhood at just 19 years old. It was while she was pregnant with Jacqueline that she first met David Wallaby. David was good friends with Cynthia's best friend Peggy, and one Christmas, when Cynthia went to drop a present to Peggy's house, David answered the front door. That was their first introduction, but they didn't begin a relationship until over a year later. Cynthia wasn't ready for a relationship. She was living at home with her mother, and things were still rocky with her ex Jimmy. When Jacqueline was one month old, Jimmy allegedly tried to abduct her after climbing through an upstairs window. When Cynthia's stepsister saw him, she screamed and he ran off. Cynthia filed a report with the police, but Jimmy denied the allegations and he was never charged. Shortly after Jacqueline was born, Cynthia and David went on a double date to Chicago first with Peggy and Jean. But still, Cynthia didn't feel ready to get into a new relationship. In 1982, Peggy and Jean got married. Their best friends, Cynthia and David, were part of the wedding party as bridesmaid and groomsman. Peggy and Jean arranged for them to stand together, and from there, romance blossomed. Cynthia and David began dating. They were both young, but ready to become a family. David first met Jacqueline when she was 18 months old, and they bonded immediately. David's mother, Anne, said, He wasn't one of those men who just liked babies. He liked Cindy's baby. Anne recalled when she first met Jacqueline, David carried her in his arms and proudly announced, This is Cindy's little girl. Jacqueline couldn't pronounce David, so she dubbed him 
Dada. And even when Cynthia tried to correct her, it was pointless. David was Jacqueline's dad from then on. They got engaged on New Year's Eve that same year. Relationships move a lot faster once you have children. In October of 1983, the couple were married. Two-year-old Jacqueline had the honour of being their flower girl. Cynthia became pregnant shortly after the wedding, and on the 18th of April, 1984, David took his first and only day off work and went to court to legally adopt Jacqueline. Most people who knew the Dwallaby family knew David as Jacqueline's father, not biologically, but in every other sense of what it means to be a father. That is what David was from day one. Jacqueline never knew that David wasn't her father. She just knew that he was her dad. The young family were living in a ranch-style house in Riverdale in 1984. David was still working at Rack's, and Cynthia was working part-time as a nurse's aide at Oak Forest Hospital while taking classes at Moraine Valley College. In June 1984, David and Cynthia welcomed their second child, a little boy they named David Jr., Davy for short. In the summer of 1987, the young family moved into David's childhood home in Midlothian. His mother Anna moved to the basement to give them space. They planned to buy the house from Anna, but moved in in the meantime so that Jacqueline could start school there. We spoke to Jacqueline's childhood friend, Catherine, about Jacqueline and life in Midlothian as a child of the 80s. Here is what she said. Everybody kind of knows everybody. And um, it was just safe, middle class, working class, not rich by any means, but not poverty stricken. Decent, typical neighborhood. It was safe to walk walk around. I walked um, from my house, which was right by the elementary school, to McDonald's, you know, at 10 years old with my friends. It was safe. We were allowed to do that. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. We were a safe community, and, I mean, we didn't lock our doors at night. We were, you know, we, we could play. I lived maybe a mile and a half, two miles from Jacqueline. And as a first and second grader, I could ride my bike to her house, no problem. Let's see, we have gone to school together since kindergarten. My, my mom, she recalls one of the first days of maybe it was first grade or second grade. Um, she remembers us running up to each other and holding hands and excited to see each other. Um, at school. She was very friendly, not clicky at all. I remember playing jump rope with her at recess and just everybody got along well with her from my recollection. Um, And she was just so sweet and somewhat quiet. I remember she was somewhat shy. I was a loud kid, you know, hyper and loud, and she was just reserved, sweet and friendly. The, a memory, like I remember us in like music class and um, I don't know, whatever we were doing, square dance or something they used to teach us. <laughs> um, and I just remember she always had pretty dresses on. She was very sweet, cute, 
and she was always had her hair perfect. She had cute clothes. We got along really well. She was friendly with everyone. You know, we played often. I was at her sleepover for her birthday party. I just remember being in her house and thinking she was so lucky. They wanted the home on 148th place to be perfect, so spent any extra money they had on fixing up the house, like remodeling the kitchen and painting. I remember just the living room when you first walk in, and then it was like somewhat of an open floor mat, if I'm not mistaken, and the kitchen and the bedrooms were to the right when you walked in. Um, she had a nice backyard, a swing set. Like I said, I was just I just spent the night there not long before for her birthday party. And it was very clean, very peaceful inside there. Again, I was just a kid, not really aware of things, but you know when someone's not orderly and what have you. But it was a nice house. It was typical to the area. The house had already been home to David's family when he was a boy. It bore the scars that are inflicted by teenage boys. Scuff marks, chipped paint, a fist mark in a door. Jacqueline's bedroom was the largest room in the house. When the family moved in, Cynthia and David had painted the bedroom with Jacqueline's favourite colours, purple, pink and white. I remember walking in her room and thinking, oh my God, you're so, I said it, you're so lucky you have a canopy bed. Like I just, I remember that so clearly. Everybody wanted a canopy bed back then, and she had one. And, uh, you know, I remember what toys we were playing with. It's crazy. (laughs) We were um, playing with, I think it was Tinkerbell makeup, like fake blush. It was like a liquid (laughs) and lip gloss. And then uh, we had a water balloon fight at her birthday party. Um, I even remember the cereal we had for breakfast the next morning. So I just think those little things are, are strange that they stuck in my head, you know. Down the hall from Jacqueline's bedroom was Cynthia and David's bedroom, while the third bedroom belonged to Davy. David built the kids a fort in the back garden and a swing set and picnic table was placed in the front garden. I remember I remember her little brother Davy, yeah, he was chasing us around trying to kiss me, I remember. <laughs> um but uh, her her mom was very nice. Her dad was very nice. So I, my memories of them were pleasant. I've never seen anything that would suggest that she was abused or mistreated. Again, not that I really would have known what to look for as a child. They were friendly. It was clean and, and tidy. And uh, but they weren't. Like I said, we weren't. I didn't feel like I would get in trouble if we. We played or whatever. Um, but they, yeah, they were friendly. They didn't sit and hang out with us, um, kind of did their own thing, but uh, our interactions were always pleasant. You know, again, very young. It's not like we had deep conversations and like, it's not like your teen years where you're like, my parents did this and my parents did that. It was, uh, you know, let's chase each other. Let's play this kind of behaviors. Jacqueline and her friends helped Cynthia water the plants while Jacqueline liked to play with her pom-poms on the front porch. It was the perfect place to raise a family. I, I mean, just a sweet little angel. 
and she just was. And that's my memory of her. And um, I think that's why when you guys sent this message, I was like so, I didn't even hesitate to share who she was from, I mean, not that I can offer a lot, but that was just so sweet. And I appreciated that. Despite the fact she was only seven years old, Jacqueline already knew she wanted to be a mother and be married. She dreamed of becoming a cheerleader when she was finally in high school, and she loved to read. She was girly girl through and through and always wanted to wear a skirt or a dress in school. She loved to take care of her younger brother and allowed him to join in any game she was playing, even when her friends came over. Jacqueline could be spotted in the neighbourhood, roller skating or riding her bike. She made friends with the other children easily. As her neighbour, Colleen Jones Godden said, She was a real sweet, real busy little girl. I called her the social butterfly of the neighbourhood. Jacqueline was known for her pleasant and friendly demeanour and always made sure to greet Colleen as she took her infant daughter on a stroller in the neighbourhood. According to some neighbours, the Dwallaby family kept mostly to themselves, but said that Cynthia always seemed like a sweet girl and a loving mother. Cynthia would sometimes attend the neighbourhood Tupperware parties or makeup demonstrations. Cynthia was born to be a mother. She always made sure the children were dressed impeccably and opted to shop in thrift stores for a good bargain. She was room mother at Jacqueline's school and volunteered at Davies Preschool. Then when Jacqueline joined the Brownies, she made an appearance at the Mother's Day Brownie luncheon in a fashion show. Jacqueline had joined the local Brownies in first grade. In February 1988, Jacqueline had her first dance, a Valentine's father and daughter dance, made extra special because Valentine's Day is David's birthday. Jacqueline was so excited, dressed in her favourite outfit, a red chiffon blouse with a ruffle skirt that was laced at the hem. Jacqueline and David bowled together too, even winning trophies in the father-daughter league. Cynthia was still working part-time and attending classes. It would often be late when she arrived home and David had everything done with the kids as soon as he got in from work. They were a team. As neighbour Holly Deck said to the Chicago Tribune, they were a loving family. They were always hugging their kids. They never yelled at them. For outsiders looking in, the Dwallaby family seemed like the all-American family. It was noticed by many that when David and Cynthia saw each other, their eyes would light up. The family would often go bike riding, fishing or for ice cream at the local ice cream parlour. They were both very hands-on parents. Cynthia helped Jacqueline set up a lemonade stand in the front garden and often invited neighbourhood kids over for lunch and painting. Jacqueline's favourite book was Nikki Upstairs and Downstairs. She eventually learned to read all the words and would read it to her parents before bed. Although Jacqueline had no contact with her biological father, Jimmy, Cynthia felt it was important for Jacqueline to have contact with her biological family. A couple of times a year, she would go over to her paternal grandmother's house, Jackie Guess. After Jimmy allegedly tried to break into her mother's home, Cynthia had no contact with her ex-husband and he wasn't a part of Jacqueline's life. Jimmy's mother, Jackie, told her that he moved to Texas and then Florida for work. David adopting Jacqueline was the best thing for the Dwallaby family, but not everyone was happy. Jackie said it hurt her and Jimmy. 
Cynthia trusted Jackie and knew that Jimmy wasn't around, but she still felt anxious about Jacqueline being in the guest home. Because of Tim. Jimmy's younger brother. Tim had psychiatric issues and was medicated, but would be prone to what Cynthia called trouble at home with his mother. Jacqueline stayed in the guest house in August 1988, and as far as we know for sure, that was the last time she was ever in that house. The memory of Jimmy Guest allegedly attempting to kidnap his infant daughter by climbing through a window remained in Cynthia's mind, and when Officer Donald Woodard from the Midlothian PD arrived on their doorstep on September 10, 1988, he was told they feared Jimmy had tried again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week.